The interesting thing is that humans really like talking to other humans, but it turns out they also like talking to software, which is, from an engineer's point of view, fascinating to see. And they also like answering questions that the software asks them. So for example, you can create a sleep application that helps you analyze how you slept. But in a very easy conversational update, you can essentially start the morning by asking your app that, hey, how did I sleep last night? And they'll tell you that, hey, you slept seven hours and 19 minutes, of which deep sleep three hours and something, blah, blah, blah. But then it can actually ask you, how did that feel? Now, if it asks you, how did it feel? Turns out most people will answer. And this is the fascinating thing, that if you imagine how hard it is to get people to label data, if you just ask them, they will just say, oh, it's fine. You know, I feel well rested so on and so forth. You're listening to Foreign Founders, where we tell stories of immigrant and international founders who are working tirelessly to shape the future. We share stories of their upbringing, culture, and background, and explore the companies and products they're building. We want to highlight these founders because these are stories that are often not told. Thank you for joining us. I'm thrilled to have today's guest, Marcus Lampinen, CEO and co-founder of Prefina. Prefina opens up a world for developers to build applications while maintaining user control on personal data. He's a veteran in the tech and AI space, founding, advising, and investing in multiple companies, and hosts his own podcast with his co-founder called the Liberty, Equality, and Data Podcast. Thanks for coming on the show, Marcus. No, thank you so much, Andy. It's fantastic to be here. Yeah, really great to have first a podcast veteran on it. So <laughs> you're my second, actually. There you go. To start off with your background, I would love to explore that, where you were born, and then what brought you to San Francisco. Yep, that sounds great. So... First of all, it's fantastic to be here on the podcast, especially in such of a context around the diverse talent that we have here in Silicon Valley. That's really, really important. So I'm born in Stockholm, out of all places. My parents are Finnish, lived outside of Finland for a couple of decades. So I was born there and I grew up talking Finnish in Sweden and then moved over to Finland at a young age, talking Swedish in Finland, where my parents were unconventional at the time. They figured that, you know, kids can handle all sorts of languages, where the conventional wisdom at the time was very much that keep kids focused on one path. That they yeah. will just get confused. So they were just like, kids will be fine. Let's just throw everything at them. Around a couple of years later, after we moved to Finland, then we actually moved to the U.S. So I spent part of my childhood in Kansas, again, picking the most exotic places in Lawrence in a university town. That was quite an important experience for me, I would say. And part of really what stuck was this, not just the Midwestern, but really the American optimism and confidence that the school system instills in kids. Yeah. Like in sixth grade, I got access amount of scholarship and stipends and, and whatnot, seventh grade again, and so on and so forth. And I remember thinking that that would never happen in Finland or in Sweden. Like the classes are in a way very homogenous and they're kind of kept together. And I'm not saying that this was separating out the class, but it was like recognizing individuality. And that was a really, really cool part. So fast forward a little bit. I went through two universities over in Finland. I can't remember how many years my parents lived outside of the country. Then they just felt like it was time to go back home. Mm -hmm. And they did. And then after that, I went through a computer science program as well as an economics program. I think during university, 
university, I started my first company. That was great. That was around content rights, especially around how music catalogs and entertainment catalogs were not just going to the streaming services, but piracy networks. This is 2005. And that one we grew, we sold. Then the second company was a fintech company. And I remember at the time we started thinking that where does it make sense for this company to actually run? So this is 2009, 2010. There we fought FinTech, you know, New York, obviously, that you go there, everybody's there. And we started doing that, but we realized at some point that the entire ecosystem around technology is actually here. So calibrated quickly and then essentially set up shop here. That was really the starting point to being here. And I've been here for about 10 years, give or take. But I think like everybody kind of went through this calibration during COVID. Like you kind of had the start of COVID and you realize that everything is insanely expensive here. And they're like, what are we doing here? So we actually did in our family, we did a pros and cons list. We kind of were figuring out like, you know, why are we here? And if not here, then where? Yeah. And it was never about going back to Finland, for example. It was always about like, you know, Japan's pretty nice and so on and so forth. You know, recognizing my own privilege here. But the interesting thing was that really the diversity in the San Francisco Bay Area, that was the number one thing for us. Mm-hmm. Because we've got young kids and we were just thinking it is such a privilege to grow up in an environment where you have just cross disciplines, background and stories, people around. And that's the number one thing that I would say in a way brought us here, but also then kind of kept us, especially during COVID. Yeah. So that's why I think it's really, really awesome to be on the podcast that you guys are developing here. Yeah. No, really appreciate you going through your history. And I feel like your starting story of being able to identify the different areas of uniqueness or individuality, you're bringing this to your family as well. And then that's like the core decision-making process. And even with uh, Perfina, your company right now, what is the tagline? The tagline is Liberty Equality Data. Right. You're embodying that, Perfina. So, no, I really appreciate the background. And do you identify as like an immigrant founder here? It's a really, really good question. And I'm also coming from Finland and Sweden. And it's not really like a typical immigrant story in that sense. So it's not something that comes natural, you know, to me as a thought. But I mean, definitely in terms of terminology, then as a very privileged immigrant, yes. From the talent point of view and the diversity point of view, then definitely bringing in different types of perspectives. Like certainly, you know, coming in as a white person to Silicon Valley, then that's not a lot of contribution here. But then kind of looking at, for example, like the Scandinavian way of life, like how there is this aversion to inequality, for example, And then the kind of the call it like the social Democrat system around. I mean, all of those obviously also are kind of very, very interesting contributions. Yeah, definitely in terms of coming here. And then I feel like every single person that comes to Silicon Valley, they go through a certain type of filter. And that's certainly something that we share. Yeah, incredible. So you shared your upbringing and it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, first moving around often, being able to get exposure to different culture and different environment. Did you always want to be a founder or an entrepreneur? No, definitely not. And just for the listeners, and I describe entrepreneurship as like a self-inflicted masochism at this stage. So it's something that you cannot do at some point. But no, definitely. We started the first company and we realized that we were solving a problem and we had catalogs of clients and so on and so forth. But it didn't like maybe we were slow, but a year in as when we realized that we had a company. Mm -hmm. 
And it was like, you know, we were doing something, we were making money, we were building something, but it never even dawned on us that we might actually have a startup. And this is maybe more of a function of the time, like this is 2005. So it wasn't really the most topical thing, certainly not in Finland, but it's almost funny looking at it in hindsight. Like, you know, kind of you think back that that year before we kind of realized what we had, like what were we thinking we were doing? Like it was just kind of this almost like, I don't know, interest in solving a problem. And then that eventually turned into something of a company. And who were you building with the same people you're building today? I was not, especially in that landscape, dealing with creative rights, dealing with essentially these very, very complicated licensing mechanisms. Yeah. Like there's three sets of rights that govern all pieces of content. And then, I mean, that that's just such a behemoth that those people, after I exited that company, they've kept in that segment and they kind of continued building there. I've been involved as an investor and advisor at times, but it's something where we kind of parted ways around 2010 when I got into fintech. But then to be fair, also at the point that we were building together, I was much more kind of on the back office and the financials and the engineering side, not so much on the actual expertise around, for example, content rights. Yeah, I feel like we share a similar way where we're interested in a lot of different things and the experience of going from let's say one industry to another that is always fascinating to me especially building in those different industries and then bringing the knowledge you know i think from what i can tell from your background you are someone who is really interested in approaching things differently and then that's why you go into fintech and it's from a digital rights company and then I'm guessing the approach is totally different, but you have like certain principles that you go in with. Yeah, that's right. I mean, everything makes sense in hindsight, right? So yeah. you can kind of tell a story anyway, like backwards. Totally. I kind of look at it as I've always worked with data in different formats, like whether or not it's pieces of content, whether or not it's financial back office stuff, or then it's personal data. I mean, it's just data that you essentially organize in a way that actually benefits somebody. Yeah. Like being able to trace where content went up. Well, that's one thing. Being able to essentially harness and correlate and combine data for other types of things, that's another. But at the end of the day, it's just manipulation of data in some shape or form. Yeah. You are right, however, that I kind of feel like my superpower, if you will, has always been the creativity. Like being able to look at something and think that, okay, I could engineer a better way to do this or solve this particular problem. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you realize that, hey, this is a problem that I'd be really interested in. And then you kind of see the cost that it would take X amount of years to actually kind of get enough information about being able to tackle that. Yeah. And that's when there, and you have to kind of make the decision that is this your problem to solve or not. And I think that's one thing that I've kind of learned along the years that you don't have to solve everything yourself. You can always choose to partner with other entrepreneurs that are solving it. You can help somebody solve it better and so on and so forth, especially people that are building certain things the first time around then you go and you can say that hey you can continue on this path but this is where i screwed up you know you might want to avoid this thing and go around it those things can actually save a lot of time and i think that's the value of essentially being able to work with other people that you kind of get to give them shortcuts but that being said i mean in a way if i'm kind of thinking about everything that's going on with applied ai today i mean at the end of the day then all of the things that underlie it are some types of data and you just organize in a certain type of way and then you make use of it in whatever shape or form. And that's practically what I've been doing. Yeah, that's a perfect segue into what you're building today. You said, you know, empowering others to build on top. What is Profina? What were you aiming to solve? Yeah, you're right. It is really about empowerment. 
So the starting point that we had when we set up Profina was this very, very simple realization that we're just going to run out of people. Like we are just literally going to run out of doctors, uh, nutritionists, sleep therapists, personal coaches, just everybody that has expertise. If you look at, for example, physicians, there's what, 10 million physicians on the planet and 8 billion people. I mean, that math just really doesn't work. So we realized that personal AI has to emerge. And when we set out Profina, we had no idea when. We thought that, you know, now is the best time to start building. But to be honest, we were expecting it to be far farther out than where we are today. But personal AI has this problem that if you build different types of personal AI applications, then who actually owns that application matters. And just as the example, for example, if you think about having a running coach that says that, hey, you ran this much, now you need to get new shoes. I looked at your heel strike data and everything that you've gone through, and here's the best shoes that fit your budget, your preferences, your sizes, and so on and so forth. If that's your bot, then that's going to be essentially looking at, okay, what is the shoe that you need? And it's going to be looking at the best deal for you. If it's Amazon's bot, I mean, it's going to take Amazon's profit margin, you know, targets, and it's going to sell you a shoe. Right. And those are very different things. It's small nuances, but if you start applying the same logic of essentially whose interest is it acting in across, for example, healthcare, wellness, all of these more serious transactions, Mm -hmm. then that's where we founded Profina. That what we do is we allow the individual to bring in all their data into their Profina account, which is controlled by them, owned by them, nobody else. And then we allow them to power different types of applications. And increasingly, these applications are applications that have some type of applied AI inside of them. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned empowering others. So it's certainly not us building all these applications. We can possibly do that. But it's developers, but also it's increasingly companies that are coming together and thinking about how do we serve the clients that we have better. And I'll give you a couple of examples just right off the bat. I was talking with a fashion company this morning from Milan. They're creating a really, really cool new line of, they told me that it's like art means meets fashion. And they immediately came to us saying that, hey, let's add sensors into those and let's build some type of unique experience on top of it. Mm-hmm. That's one example of somebody that's thinking about, okay, well, we're building something physical, but how do we actually make it generate data? How do we make the garment smart? And then how do we make it an experience? So not just the garment that you put on, but an entire experience that you get to live. That's one example. The other one is I had a call with an insurance agency this morning and the insurance agency, they have a very, very simple app that helps their policyholders live longer, happier, and so on and so forth. Now, this is something that, that we're building together with them because they, the insurance company really does not want to have this data. They want the individuals to be able to use it, so get the benefit without the cost. But that being said, the alignment of interest there is quite clear, that if they are life insurance policyholders, then the app can help them live longer, have healthier habits, live longer. But from the insurance company's point of view, the longer they live, the less payouts they make because they don't have premature deaths. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, it's actually a very, very clear alignment of interest because the goals of the individual as well as the insurance company are the same. But the problem they have is the data is so sensitive that the insurance company cannot retain it. Like, for example, you wouldn't want your insurance company to track where you slept, as an example, or where you live or have all of this data. So increasingly for financial institutions, this data actually becomes too big of a liability for them to actually retain. So that's a couple of examples. But really what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that you have your data and then you have your entire ecosystem of apps, bots, services, whatnot, that actually revolve around you, that work for you and nobody else. Do you know how many people, let's say in the US, are collecting this kind of data frequently? Yeah. 
So think about it kind of this way, that I think in the U.S. there are, I can't remember the exact number, but I know that there are tens of millions of people that have some type of wearable that are actively in exercise and, you know, this wellness boom. That's already a lot of people that are essentially generating new types of data and then could utilize it in some type of way. Wearables are great. But at the same time, how many applications do they have? They typically have one, uh, maybe some other one that's tailored to like uh, the team as opposed to the athlete. But the data that they generate, you could use it for powering all sorts of different types of applications. Like, for example, if you have an Apple Watch that tracks your HRV, which is a proxy for stress. Yeah. But at the same time, if you're able to expose that, like Apple does through the health kit, you can essentially create this entire ecosystem of apps around it. And that's sort of what we want to do, not just for the health data, but all the data that you have cross device. So not just on your Apple Watch or your phone, but also on that weird looking ski goggle thing, that thing that they released yesterday. And that's kind of the thing that if you've got your data with you, then you can actually take it to where you need to use it. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, if you want to get advice from your jacket on, you know, what, what you should do with it, for example, or which jacket you should wear, yeah. then, I mean, you need to essentially be able to interact with the jacket where you are, not necessarily where your device is. Yeah. Stepping back a little bit, you mentioned earlier the human problem, mm-hmm. not having enough people. Sure. Is that just a function of we just don't have enough talent going to these fields or population going up? boom or what's the issue there yeah it's a great question and then there's a a kind of an underlying question of is it a problem now or has it always been a problem i think we're just not able to educate enough experts i think that's the bottom line Mm -hmm. going back back to that figure i think it's between 10 and 15 million doctors Mm -hmm. and 8 billion people so i mean yes here in silicon valley you have quite a few doctors but if you start going to other parts of the world, then essentially the disparity, it just grows even increasingly. But then if you start thinking about like all the other expert groups that you have, like in Silicon Valley, we oftentimes talk about software developers. And the one thing that generative AI is doing is lowering the barrier so that anybody can start utilizing and creating code, which is great. But we don't have that across the board for everything. Like, you know, a doctor is not going to be able to use generative AI to operate on you. That's just not going to happen. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, at least not at this time. So part of this problem is really... I think it's population growth. I think it's just that there are so many different areas where you could apply human expertise that the verticals, they just, I mean, the math just doesn't work with the amount of verticals and specializations that we have. Yeah. I just find it really fascinating because I think in one of your episodes, you had Dr. Charlap. Yes, that's right. He was mentioning something like uh, with clinical data, doctors just don't want more data anymore like he's like okay yeah i know we have all these wearables and wellness data but there's not enough people who with the knowledge or even time to even apply those that's right i thought that was fascinating so from your perspective you're saying people are collecting all this data they might be single use case like maybe the apple watch is like tracking your sleep or tracking your steps but are you saying that there's the consumers want more to do with that data or break point there? Definitely that. And then coming back to the comment that you made from Stephen Sharlap, then the doctors want the patient when the patient actually needs the doctor. They don't want the patient when the patient has Googled something around, you know, their behavior and they've self-diagnosed and they end up confused in front of the doctor. 
Like Steven Tarlap, he's a brilliant guy, like absolutely hands down brilliant guy. And the amount of wasteful use of people like his time, uh, just because, you know, people don't figure out when they should actually go to the doctor and when not. So I think there is a couple of different dimensions to it. One is making essentially educated and efficient use of the experts, like when we actually need the experts, because we're not replacing them. That's not the point. The point is about augmenting them. So for example, using all of this wearable data, some of it, it's more, I think in that episode, uh, Stephen mentioned that some of it's more entertainment grade and some of it's more wellness grade. And then only a few you know, data points are actually clinical grade. And that's absolutely valid. But most of it does showcase a trend. So if you can essentially notice that your heart rate doesn't recover as fast after your run, I mean, that's indicative of of something. I don't know exactly what, of something. If you can notice that your heart rate during your sleep is not essentially recovering in the same way, or that your breathing rate is changing, your blood your body temperature is changing and so on and so forth. Yeah. So there's no question that there's a lot of value in that data set. So if we can use that data set to essentially guide and nudge the individuals or even kind of highlight certain things about their own data that they can then pay attention to, then I mean, maybe we notice things that we're not noticing. And maybe we also make sure that once we actually do go to the doctor, that I mean, we're not actually wasting their time. For the listeners, I highly recommend the episode. It was, like you said, Dr. Stephen Charlotte was had very unique insights into his profession, but also layering into how broadly applied like wellness data doesn't help for a lot of cases. The one thing that really sticks to my mind is like people's weight and how they fluctuate and like based on their history on XYZ. But you wouldn't know that from a data. No. You just only see weight goes up and weight goes down over time and you don't know why. I'll give you another example of that, that specific data point. So we have a client that we're starting to work with and they've created a scale, it doesn't actually have a number. And it's ran by a physician. They've been running it for a while. Their clinical results are absolutely fantastic in weight control. And they particularly work with obesity. But they had this realization that if you're struggling with your weight, you don't want to see the number. Like the number is not going to help you because like you said, it fluctuates. So how do you know, like, what is your liquid balance today? And why did it go down? Why did it go up? So I train and run in endurance events and I track my weight a lot. And I don't worry about it going up and down on a daily basis because I know that most of it's just liquid, but they've had a lot of success in then utilizing that data and harnessing that data for insights and then different types of nudges. Because if you essentially are utilizing the weight data through some type of applied AI application, and that's then essentially focusing all the nudges on behavioral changes, as opposed to, you know, your weight went up or your weight went down. Yeah then essentially the impact and the changes that it's advocating for, they're a lot more helpful because there are a lot more long-term focus. Like for example, in terms of what they're doing, then most of the attention is on lifestyle changes or just making sure that you have healthy lifestyle updates. So things like, you know, getting enough sleep, getting enough activity, getting, you know, just eating well. And those basics, if you essentially can utilize the scales data to highlight some of those, then they've proven that it's actually a lot more valuable than being able to actually show the data itself. And this is really where we see that a lot of these have to go, that it's not just about the data. It's about utilizing the data for nudges or then utilizing the data for creating something that creates an experience or creates a journey for the individual themselves. Yeah, it really changes the paradigm of like user experiences with different products through data, through new applications that people are using with like unique insights into a continuous stream of user data that's coming in. I want to shift a little bit with the 
this understanding of consumer burden and data around that. So for me personally, I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. I'm collecting all this data. I want to be able to use it the way I want to. I want to be able to have developers develop really tailor-made solutions that I want to experience. That makes a lot of sense. I think there's a study like a Pew Research study in 2019 that was saying 80% or more of Americans were saying that they were very concerned about their data being used by corporations or governments. But at the same time, you see products like I don't know if there's any user data centric products that are having a big market share. Like even if you look at the browser, I think the Chrome market share is like 62% overall. And there are other more privacy centric products out there. So where do you think there's a disconnect there? Yep. I mean, best product wins, right? Yeah. That's how it goes. And privacy is not the selling point. And I don't think it will ever be the selling point. That doesn't mean that it's not important. It's just that like you you know, alluded to, people just don't care enough. It's not the top level item. The top level item is the best experience and the best product. So taking a step back, the way that we see it is that in the future, we will need orders of magnitude more data to actually create really specific applications. So something that, for example, gives you insight to when you should go to sleep based on your genetics. Now you start getting into this problem that's not just about consumer burden and consumer burden should be absolutely floor level, like so dead simple as possible. But it's sort of like, you know, you get to this level of data that no corporation will want it. Because if you want really personalized, individualized applications, then you get into this problem that you can't build them the centralized way. There's just no way. I'll give you another one. I like picking on genetics because it's like a really, really hairy data set. Mm -hmm. So for example, would it be cool to be able to explore like genetics based like music genre recommendations? Like I would personally find that absolutely fascinating seeing like, you know, similar type of compositions of DNA, then do they share some type of patterns? Again, you're not going to be able to build that if you had to keep all of that data. So I think we're kind of approaching this kind of like plateau. Like we cannot get more individualized and personal consumer experiences unless we actually figure out a different way of building applications. Mm -hmm. So I actually look at this much more on the developer and the, the builder side, that how do we equip them to create the most personal individualized experiences? And just to kind of throw it out there that what if instead of personalizing with data, you could build applications where the application itself is trained on local data sets, where the application itself is individual only to you, and you could essentially yourself power that almost unique application, certainly unique experience in a way that's private to you. So I think consumer burden is like most consumers don't need more stuff to do. Like that's not kind of the way to go. But at the end of the day, they also want more specific insights and experiences. Mm -hmm. And the only way there is that you essentially get to orders of more magnitude data, but then the architecture has to change. And that is full circle to what you're building, the data platform. Can you talk a little bit about that? And then there's also an AI component as well. Correct. So coming back to what we're doing at Profina. So Profina allows you to bring in all the data that you've got into your Profina account. Mm -hmm. We organize the data. We add timestamps and all the good stuff to make it as easy to use as possible. And then developers and companies can utilize this. So the developers and the companies, they get all the data, all the benefits, but no risk because they don't have to spin up the data architecture. They don't have to maintain the data, clean it. They don't even have to hold the data. So they can just build the best experience for their customers possible. But if you think about the platform itself, 
off. It means that all the data is individualized. So I have 63 gigabytes of my personal data. You build an application for me, I can plug all that into the application and it can deliver, I don't know, the genetics-based song recommendations to me, for example. That means that the developers and companies, they have this opportunity to create these more specific applications, but also to reimagine experiences. So the AI component is really, it's software like anything else. It just sits on top of this data. But because of the conversational interface that we've come up with in the last six months or so, then that means that you can actually now talk to your data and your data can talk back. The interesting thing is that humans really like talking to other humans, but turns out they also like talking to software which is, from an engineer's point of view, fascinating to see. And they also like answering questions that the software asks them. So, for example, you can create a sleep application that helps you analyze how you slept. But in a very easy conversational update, you can essentially start the morning by asking your app that, hey, how did I sleep last night? And they'll tell you that, hey, you slept seven hours and 19 minutes, of which deep sleep three hours and something, blah, blah, blah. But then it can actually ask you, how did that feel? Now, if it asks you, how did it feel? Turns out most people will answer. And this is the fascinating thing that if you imagine how hard it is to get people to label data, if you just ask them, they will just say, oh, it's fine. You know, I feel well rested and so on and so forth. Yeah. So this is the AI layer that not only can you interact with the data, but you can build entire applications on top of this, utilizing this. So an example would be that you take, for example, a pro basketball team, and then essentially you give a AI-based coach into the pocket of every single player. So when the player wakes up at four and they can't get to sleep, then they're not going to call their coach, but they could take the coach app out and they could say that, hey, you know, I'm up at four. What type of exercises might I do to start off the day? Mm -hmm. So this is a real use case where essentially you have the specialized program from an elite sports team, and then you embody that in to an intelligent AI agent that knows the population that it's serving, knows the data, stress data, sleep data, activity data, and then it can feed coach-like recommendations and suggestions to the players. So it's very similar to the doctor example, but the expert here, it's the basketball coach. Yeah, it's almost like an infinitely scalable expert that goes back to that first problem. But one thing that I was thinking about when you were answering the, you know, humans like to talk to humans, but human also like to talk to software. Where did you get that from? Are we sure that humans like to talk to software? What was the the insights there? So it's just anecdotal evidence that we've got, really. If you think about what we as humans have been almost trained to do with our mobile phones, it's that most people that own some type of wearable, they wake up and they look at charts on a small screen about their sleep. I don't exactly know how that makes your life better. But if you can essentially turn that around so that they don't even have to open the phone, they can just ask how I slept last night. Now that's reducing the friction for getting into some type of a summary. Now, the summary itself, how we make that more useful, that's different. But in our tests, we've actually learned that when we give the individuals these types of natural language interfaces, they start talking and they don't stop. Like they just keep going. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that there's something about conversational AI and just being able to have a conversation conversation that's just so human yeah. that that screen ultimately i doubt it can compete with that long term yeah it probably is one of those things where it's not only human but it's fast faster too that engagement like i imagine you doing that just purely via text yeah. on the response side it's also going to take a while too it's going to take longer for you to like type it all out that's right versus yeah just voice i think voice is the reason why i'm doing this is because voice is a very strong medium 
It is. And very human as well. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by Profina, the data, the user data story. So for me, my previous life was very much in advertising, like digital advertising. And I think we were pretty early in talking about user data and how we think about it. You know, there's always those like tropes of like how, you know, your online purchase data is being used, et cetera, et cetera. But user data to me and being able to control and manage that has always been fascinating. But even in ad space, there's been a lot of talks about how do you control it? And one of the reasons why it's like there's no companies out there is because user data on your own is not valuable. User data on aggregate is a lot more valuable, but how you're approaching user data is like more of like a self-realization right. tool. That's right. So it's almost like the value. inverse. Yeah. yeah. Because you're absolutely right. Like the central model has been like, let's store a bunch of data and then we have a huge pile of data and then let's run some type of aggregate yeah. and analytics on top of it. Yeah. And that's great for a lot of different things like advertising. But then when you want to find out about yourself and you want to get something for yourself, then I mean, you don't care about the other guy. Like you only care about, like if you're, if as a you know a completely stupid example like take sleep data like how does it help you to sleep better to know about the other guy's sleep so you're absolutely right that it is like self-actualizing but i kind of see it as really this empowerment aspect that even if like you, you take this out a little bit further, then if you have these individualized data stores, and let's say that you have them in millions, then running aggregate stuff on that becomes also absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Things like drug discovery and clinical trials and, you know, how does something impact your baseline versus, you know, a placebo. Yeah. then that's something where we definitely see a lot of impact and, and a lot of benefit. But it has to start with this individual benefit because otherwise you're absolutely right. Like you're not going to get into it unless there's something for you. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like we can go on for hours and just talk about user data and your product. But are you ready for last couple of questions? Yes, go for it. Cool. If there's any challenges you've faced as an immigrant founder, especially building Profina as well. Mm. Well, I think one of the things, especially considering the audience and kind of the context, is that data typically represents a white Western male. Mm. So then you have this problem that how do we change that? So if you consider Profina, then Profina is very much about individualized data and applications on top of that. And this is something where we're hoping that we find partners and builders across the globe building something for communities that they recognize and communities that they know. Because it's really kind of this empowerment aspect that if you can gather this data and utilize it in in an individually beneficial way, then it becomes almost like a collective opportunity. And that's the one thing that from a very selfish point of view, then how we actually get this model past the tipping point is that we get a couple of those. I mean, we just get one application that really takes off Mm -hmm. and really, really takes off. And that's where we need a lot more developers. Yeah. And are there specific type of developers that you're looking for? What's the call to action? I feel like as an example, you had a lot of great, interesting examples on the industries that you're working with from sports teams all the way to medical to luxury wear clothing lines. On the flip side for developers, like who are you looking for? Yep. So if you're a developer and effectively you need data, I mean, that's the starting point that we can essentially give you access to data from the get go to build something that something that doesn't exist. But I would really say that the biggest areas that we're looking for are around 
behavioral health, health and wellness, fitness, and these types of data sets Got it. and creating something that's 10 times better than what we currently have. Yeah. So just as an example, you mentioned some of those verticals, but let's take meditation apps. Like most of these meditation apps don't really have feedback loops. If you put a lot more data into them, stress and sleep and activity, could you tell the person that, hey, you know, you should meditate for seven minutes at 7 p.m., for example? So just making these applications a lot more specific to essentially the individuals, I think that's a huge benefit. And that's kind of really the call to action is that for somebody that's building something in this space, if they want to explore applications that are far more individualized than what we currently have, then that's the biggest thing that we can do. Amazing. The last question I always ask is, what are you optimistic about? So I am very much long on AI and kind of applied AI right now. And I think the thing that I'm specifically interested in is the conversational AI and the conversational interface, because that's something that it allows individuals to unlock so much more in an easy way, like we talked about. That's something that I feel is also kind of underrepresented currently. Like we talk about generative AI and so on and so forth, and that's fantastic. But at the same time, this notion that you can actually run software with your voice, that to me sounds, I mean, completely revolutionary. So as an example, if you imagine AWS's, you know, infrastructure as code, if you add a voice interface into that, now you can essentially spin up infrastructure and even like entire systems just with your voice, theoretically. Mm -hmm. So this is something that we see as, you know, I personally see as incredibly exciting, but also we see as a huge potential at Perfina. Incredible. How can people find you? Are you hiring? Yeah. So, I mean, our website is perfina.com. That's an easy starting point. We've got a bunch of activities there. We've also got an open Slack yeah. called Liberty Equality Data, very fittingly. And then we have a bunch of different types of assets like synthetic data libraries and so on and so forth that developers can interact with and just, you know, prototype stuff with. But I think in general, then if somebody's looking at building something in the space with data, especially something that's a lot more personal, then I'd love to hear from anybody that's in that space. So you can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter and so on and so forth. Amazing. Well, thank you for coming on the show, Marcus. Thank you, Andy. This has been really fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or any of your favorite podcast app. One more thing. Foreign Founders is a new podcast, so please consider leaving a rating or review. That helps more people find the show. See you on the next episode.